Hello, I'm Andy Stevenson and welcome to another episode of A Winning Mindset, brought to you by the International Paralympic Committee and their long-standing and now worldwide Paralympic insurance partner, Allianz. Our aim is to introduce you to stories with Paralympians that will spark confidence in your everyday life. Stories of challenges, ups and downs, determination and excellence. This season we've been focusing on mental health and how to deal with setbacks. Get to know the true power of having the right team behind you and join us as we prepare you for what's ahead. Our guest today will really make you think. American Jaylene Roberts has cerebral palsy and won silver in the T37 long jump and 100 metres at the Tokyo Paralympics. But as well as having a visible physical disability, she also has an invisible mental health condition, living with bipolar disorder. Just a warning that we do discuss suicidal feelings and the suicide of one of Jaylene's closest friends. So if you think this could be triggering, please bear that in mind if you carry on listening. Jaylene, has it been quite a whirlwind since coming home from Tokyo? Yes, it has been. So I got home, I pretty much packed up all my stuff and moved my life to San Diego. And now I'm there and I'm student teaching, finishing up college and training at the uh, Chula Vista Athletic Training Center. Yes, it's been pretty nonstop, but the break was good. And now I'm glad to be back on the track and in the weight room. Life is a lot smoother when I have a routine for me. And has that been the case ever since you were a child or just more recently? I think I've kind of always been like that, but more so as an adult and just living on my own, making sure to have a lot of structure is important to me. I feel like it just, it, it keeps me on track and it keeps me focused. And when I don't have that, I tend to lose sight of my goals or things that should be priorities. Now we've got so much to talk to you about. So um, I'll maybe start at the big beginning. You have cerebral palsy, which is from birth, but you are such an active child. Give us a flavor of all of the sports you played growing up. Yeah, so I started at age four or five with soccer. And I think I just liked that from, from the get-go. And I ended up playing soccer all the way through my high school graduation. I also have played t-ball. I've done dance. Once I got up to middle school, I did gymnastics and basketball and wrestling. What's t-ball, by the way? The people listening in the States and, and Canada and places like that, I imagine, will know. But I'm sat here in England and I must admit I don't. So what's t-ball about? Yeah, so t-ball is uh, baseball, but it just it includes a T. So instead of there being a pitcher and throwing it to the batter, you hit the ball off of a T, which makes it easier for four and five-year-olds. All right. Okay. I like the sound of that. And and when I hear you talking, especially about all those sports you did and your attitudes to things too, I begin to think that you obviously didn't let your disability hold you back in any way. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times I even forgot about it a little bit. And especially within the within the female wrestling community, people were not bothered by it at all. And a lot of people that I knew would also forget that I had it unless someone asked them why I walk the way I do or uh, whatnot. Because was that the case in ordinary everyday life as well, that actually you, you just got on with life and got on with doing everything your mates did outside of sports I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, a little bit in elementary school, I got bullied kind of I wouldn't I don't know if I would say bullied exactly but a lot of like oh why do you walk like that or people would like mimic the way that I walked but looking back like that age group they they don't understand you know 
So, but as I got older, like it was not an issue. I was, I was pretty popular in school when I was dating my ex-girlfriend in high school, people would ask her about it and she would be so confused. She would say, what? And he's like, why? She's like, oh, she has cerebral palsy. Like she would even forget about it. So just like that, just like became so like mundane, like it was not a big deal at all. And now people don't really like, they'll notice I might walk a little bit different, but they think maybe like I'm pigeon toed or they'll ask if I'm hurt. I mean, it's fascinating then that you've ended up coming round to and being a Paralympian, which we'll which we'll come on to to later on. I mean, ordinarily at this point, I'd continue chatting to you about that physical disability, but more recently, you've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and in this series, we're focusing on mental health. So, had you experienced mental health issues as a child or as a teenager? The very first memory that I have of it is started in around second or third grade when my mother got pregnant with my little sister. Um, and I developed really bad separation anxiety to the point where I wouldn't want to go to school in the morning. Or if I did go to school, I would want to come home right after and be with her. Or they would allow me to call her during lunches. And so eventually we got this notebook and she would write to me at nighttime or in the morning and give it to me and I would bring it to school. And then I'd write back to her and give it to her after school. And we just do that day in and day out and now we have matching tattoos that kind of like resemble that i really love the idea of you writing these notes for your mum. and what about this tattoo then tell us about that i knew that i wanted to get a tattoo but i knew that i wanted to be pretty meaningful and so the butterfly my tattoo is actually one of the butterflies that was on the front of the notebook and then it says, I love you, love mommy in her handwriting. So that was taken directly out of one of the entries that she did. So tattoo artist just copied over the handwriting. So I have it on me. And then she also has one with my handwriting on it, my third grade handwriting. And it says, mommy, I love you. I like it because it just kind of like encapsulates my whole journey. And it's definitely a talking point. People ask about it all the time. So I'm also glad that I got that too, because sometimes you might not know, I might be sitting next to somebody that's struggling that I don't even know. And then they ask me, oh, what's your tattoo? And then I tell them, and then that'll be kind of a conversation starter for them. Them knowing that I struggle with that, they'll feel comfortable opening up to me. So separation anxiety was the start of your mental health journey. Yeah. So it started in third grade and then it kind of turned into depression around my middle school years. And I was on an antidepressant from about eighth grade up until a year and a half ago when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And mental health is, it runs in my family on both sides also. So I wasn't like super surprised, but it definitely was interesting how it changed throughout my childhood. It started as really bad separation anxiety and now I don't struggle with that as much, but I still struggle with some depressive episodes sometimes. We're going to hear from your mum, Kathleen, a a bit later on in the podcast, but did you grow up in a family that was supportive to these mental health issues? Oh yeah, 100%. Absolutely. My, My older brother has ADHD and so it was always something that was talked about and my mom was always really good at about checking in on us and she's very attentive so she'll notice the slightest change, especially when... I lived with her growing up. Now it's a little bit harder because I don't see her every day and we live in different states. So we'll have phone conversations or FaceTime. But especially when I lived with her, 
she's very good at noticing the slightest change in mood or behavior and you couldn't really hide it from her if you wanted to and she always was very easy to talk to I know a lot of people a lot of my friends and a lot of people I know that is not something that they talk to their parents about or their parents don't really take it seriously it's like oh like you're just sad like why why are you sad it's like no it's a lot deeper than that it's always been something that has been openly talked about in my family and I'm grateful for that because I'm not sure what my outcome would have been had my family not been so open about it from a young age. And things got really tough for you around the postponement of the Tokyo Paralympics. So we're talking kind of early, mid-2020 onwards, really. Describe that period to us. Yeah, so about... March 2020, I think, is when everything started to kind of spiral for me. So school had been placed online and me being a class clown and super outgoing and just my learning style, that really bummed me out. And I, my thought process was, you know, if I wanted to do online classes, I would have signed up for online classes. And now I was forced to do something that I wasn't comfortable doing and that I knew I wasn't going to enjoy. And shortly after that, the Paralympic Games had got postponed and I was extremely distraught when that happened. And I'm not, I mean, I know why it hit me so hard, but I, for some time, I couldn't understand why I didn't bounce back. A lot of athletes were happy about it. They saw it as another year of, um, another year for training, another year for getting stronger, faster. And I was just so bummed because it had been something that I'd been training for for four years and it was ripped out from under me in like two seconds. And then shortly after that, uh, I had went through a breakup with my ex-boyfriend. And between those three life events happening in such a short amount of time, I think it was just a really quick spiral. And my medication, I was taking an antidepressant. And the whole time I had had bipolar disorder unknowingly. And my antidepressant wasn't making me feel happier. It wasn't making me feel sad. But I was just kind of in this really neutral zombie-like state that I w- did not like to be in. And so I just kind of got fed up and stopped taking my medication. And that's when I really started to spiral. I was just very honest. I told my coach and his wife, I said, I need help. And their first reaction was, okay, what can we do for you? And I explained to them, it's not help like from a person. It's not a conversation with a person that's going to help. Like I need medical professional help. And I told them, I said, I'm not going to make it. And so we kind of explored my options and I ultimately decided to come back to where my mom lived and my mom went with me to the ER and I told him exactly what was going on and I went through the whole process of getting the social worker and have a talk with her and getting placed in a facility that fits me and then I went there for about three days and I got a re-diagnosis and then it was stable for a little while. There were some readjustments with medication so I had some really low dips and high highs, but now it's kind of stable that where I figured out what medications work and what dosages work. When you talk about a facility, Jaylene, you 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 actually checked yourself in really, didn't you, to a psychiatric unit, is that right? Yeah, it was 100% voluntary also. Because that's a remarkable step to take. Had the pressure sort of built up on you to a certain point where you thought, I've got to do this, or was it quite a sudden decision? I mean, I hadn't really thought about it when I was going through all that stuff, but then I felt like I kind of hit rock bottom. I didn't know really what else to do. And I had had conversations with people, you know, and I had been on medication and 
that wasn't working. So I knew that I needed to take it a step further because I knew that I wanted to be here. I just, I didn't want to go through what I was going through. And so obviously when that's the case and you feel like that, your mind resorts to like very few options. I decided to go with one that was going to keep me alive. And you absolutely mean that, don't you? You think this th- that move kept you alive, as in if you hadn't decided to go down that route, then things would have got very dark. 100%. I, I don't think that if I wouldn't have gone, I don't, I, um, I don't think that dying by suicide would have been out of question. I'm glad it wasn't the case because now looking back, all, all the good things that have happened since then, you know, I would have missed out on. I'm sat here listening with my jaw open really because it makes it all the more incredible that only a matter of months later here we are talking to each other and you're a Paralympic medalist we mentioned your your family and your mum earlier but thank goodness the people you turned to your mum and your coach were so responsive and so aware of what you needed. That's one thing I'm grateful for I feel like my concerns have always been taken seriously no matter how many times I come to the same person with something every single time it's been taken with the same amount of seriousness that it would if I told them one time or 20 times that something was happening. So I think that's one thing that helped me too, is that nobody ever, it was never like a boy who cried wolf situation. Every single time I came to somebody with the concern, even if it was the same concern as last time, they still took it with the same amount of seriousness as before. More from Jaylene soon, but first, let's get to know who is behind her for what's ahead. Brought to you by Allianz, a long-standing and now worldwide Paralympic insurance partner of the International Paralympic Committee, we're introducing you to the people behind the Paralympians, the ones that spark their confidence and help them prepare for what's ahead. For Jaylene, that's her mum, Kathleen, her rock. I asked her what it's been like helping Jaylene through such challenging times. The last year was rough. That was hard. I deal with my own mental health issues. So I go to doctors and I go to counselors myself. And so I've always had the kids in counseling. So I think that was a good start for her, you know, to um, be able to get help this last year. But it was tough. It was it was a really hard year for, for all of us for lots of reasons. You know, going to the hospital with her and having her call me from Spokane was hard because she was five hours away that was rough it was it was hard harder than anything you'd encountered with her physical disability would you say for sure for sure yeah and did your own kind of knowledge and experience of mental health issues um, help you yeah I mean I've I've been really open with the kids about mental health issues about you know going to counseling about getting doctors about taking care of that that aspect of their lives. So that was never really a taboo thing with stigma around it for our family because the other kids also have mental health issues and and I myself and people in my family. So that's never been something that we haven't talked about. I'm able to talk to the kids about and was able to talk to Jaylene about what different diagnoses look like and what help she might need for those. Was there a certain amount of um, relief? I mean, tell me if that's the wrong word, but but was there relief when Jaylene was actually diagnosed with bipolar? 
I was happy that she went to the hospital and that she made that decision. I was happy that she took some steps to get help, you know, and get on the right meds. And yeah, I don't know if there was relief around the diagnosis. It didn't surprise me because there's other people in the family diagnosed with that. And I was just happy that she was able to reach out for help, you know, and that she was able to get the help that she needed for that. It strikes me that she's very lucky to have a mum like yourself and a family like the one she's been brought up in who are always behind her for what's ahead and are open to these issues. Because I'm sure you'll be aware lots and lots of families would have reacted to all of this in a completely different way, in a much more negative way. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's still a ton of stigma associated with mental health and especially bipolar disorder and um, diagnosis that people aren't really aware of and what they mean. You know, you can say like, I have depression and people go, oh, you're depressed, you're sad. And then you, when you say you're bipolar, I have bipolar disorder, I have schizophrenia or some of these other diagnoses, they have a lot of stigma and a lot of things associated with them that people are just ignorant about or don't understand. Yeah, I, I think it's still a huge thing. So how important has having sports been to Jaylene's mental health and to spark confidence in her again? Oh, I think it's huge. So as a single mom raising my kids, sports and sports teams has been huge in my kids' lives. Just being part of a team, the coaches that have been involved in their lives to help them along the way, to mentor them, you know, to to bring a village into play um, with helping me raise them. Sports has been huge for my kids. So it was huge for Jaylene. I, I mean, all of it, just having like her uh, mentors and in her life to guide her and then to having the sports. So the activity, you know, and the structure of training and the activity helps your brain anyway and helps you to feel better. So I think it's been huge, a huge part of her mental health. Well, Jaylene, your mum is quite clearly an amazing person. She's been the voice behind you during those tough times and has clearly played a vital role in your mental well-being. She touched on sport being so important to you, but how would you say it's impacted your life? I think as a kid, sport really helped me to, to become a part of a community. And I think that's important just as you know I had two older brothers they're definitely closer in age and now we're all closer because we're all adults but it just gave me like my own little niche my own little community that I had and now growing up sport actually really helps me mentally just to stay happier I notice that what I'm working out is when I feel my best when I have time off I don't feel as great and then also it just helps me to have a purpose in life um, you know, that goes far beyond sports. You know, it's rooted in sports, but it, 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 it's about so much more. And I think that's, that's how it helps me the most now. Is this partly what drives you to speak so honestly about these subjects now, that there might be people listening who are going through similar struggles and actually by being so open yourself, you're actually helping them? That's pretty much why I do it. Because I, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm stable now, but I know there's a lot of people that aren't. And they're still trying to navigate, navigate how to get there. And so I just think it's important that people know that it's okay for them to not be okay. And that it's really brave for them to reach out and speak up about their struggles so that they can get the help they need. Because when people keep things to themselves or they continue to tell people that don't take their situation seriously, that's when they don't get the help that they need. And that's when 
um, undesired outcomes happen. How did you feel when you were finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Pretty relieved. I was I was more relieved when I got on the medication and actually worked and I actually was able to feel something. I don't think I had from the time that I stopped taking my antidepressants to the time that I like got diagnosed with bipolar and started taking those medications. I cried so much and not necessarily like bad, but just like I noticed that I actually had emotions instead of just like this like zombie like person. Is it too simplistic, Jaylene, to describe bipolar as having very high highs followed by very low lows? And and how often do those swings occur? So there's two types of bipolar disorder. Mine is described more as the one where you have more major depressive episodes and then you have smaller manic episodes. Simply, you can put it as you have highs and lows. I have more lows than I do highs, but like I said, it is a lot more stable now that I'm on the proper medication. And I think one of the things too is that people get normal feelings and mental illness. They can get it mixed up a little bit and it can be bad either way because you can have someone that is just having a bad day and swears that it's mental illness when in reality they're having a bad day. And then you have someone that has an actual problem that needs to be addressed and either they're telling themselves or people are telling them that oh no you're just having a bad day it'll get better or you know people have bad weeks but it's so much deeper than that like my depressive episodes unmedicated and untreated will last for weeks like three three weeks a month where I will just I feel like I could sleep all day long I'm not social at all Um, eating is very hard for me And so it's a lot more than just like feeling sad. It's like it affects you physically. And so I definitely remember some of those days prior to going to the mental hospital when I was back home, I would just sleep and my mom would call me and ask, are you okay? I'm like, yes, I'm just really tired. But that would be my depressive episode. And do you think the the average man or woman in the street, and hey, I'm going to include myself in this, do you think the average person understands what bipolar is? And what do you think the most common misconceptions about bipolar are? No, I do not think that a lot of people know what it is. For me, I mean, that rings true to me also. Like, I growing up, I kind of had a good understanding of it just because I had people in my family that were diagnosed with it. But I think that it's a lot, it's a lot more. I think the misconception is that it's you're happy and then you're sad. You're happy and then you're sad. And that like you just like jump back and forth. Like it's so much more. It's like during your manic episodes, people, depending on what type they have and how severe their manic episodes are compared to their depressive episodes, people will spend all the money in the bank account. They will go gamble. They will make unhealthy decisions. You know, they will take risks, kind of like have a feeling of being like invincible. Does that make sense? And then the depressive side, just like I had just described, your sleeping habits change, your eating habits change, your social life, how you interact with people, you might come across as really irritable. I remember growing up, my mom could immediately tell when I didn't take my medication. I remember I would get so irritated. I would be acting agitated and my mom would say, do you take your medication? And I would say no, because depression can come across as irritability. It doesn't always have to mean that you're just sitting there crying, you know, it can mean so many more things. Some, some of my depressive 
episodes, I didn't cry once, but you could just tell that I was not my normal self, my regular self. Do you think society could be more inclusive of people with bipolar disorder? And, and if so, how might we go about that? Are there, are, there, are there relatively simple changes that could be made to be more uh, empathetic or, or sympathetic perhaps towards people with bipolar? I think not necessarily bipolar in itself, but just mental illness in general. I think that a lot more awareness needs to be had about it. And I think that it can be very, very offensive to our community for people to claim that they have mental illnesses when it hasn't been diagnosed. If someone truly does feel like they have, you know, they have a problem that needs to be addressed, then by all means, you know, that's where I come in and encourage people to go, go seek the help they need, you know? Yeah, just more awareness, I guess, and take it more seriously. Mental health is something that a lot of people still don't believe in. And let's bring this back to the support because we, you know, I almost have to remind myself here that despite all of these things we've been talking about, you went to the Tokyo Paralympics and you came back with two silver medals. What was the turning point for you in terms of getting back onto the track? So after I had went to the mental hospital and kind of got my med situated and whatnot, we were still during the pandemic, we were still training via Zoom because we were still not allowed to meet in person. So we would have Zoom sessions almost every day with different athletes doing their different lift sessions or we would do core workouts or whatever it uh, may be. And so that was still a struggle for me. And I had actually like contemplating quitting track. I was trying to figure out if it's something I wanted to do because that is not, that is not what I saw track as. Like if I was going to practice, I wanted to be on the track or, you know, in, in the long jump pit. And finally, everything opened up a little bit more. And I don't know, I think something just clicked as soon as it opened, as soon as everything opened up. And I gave myself a little time to grieve over the postponement of the Paralympic Games. I just came back more motivated. And I, I kind of had to put a, I had to put, put a positive, positive lens on and look at, look at it as an extra year of training and an extra year to get stronger because I had been dealing with some really acute injuries. And so I was a lot more prepared going to the games in 2021 had I been in 2020. But I was so blinded by the fact that I had just been training for this one moment for four years. So I was so upset that it had been taken when I, I was blinding myself from seeing the, um, the blessing in disguise, that I had an extra year to, to get more prepared. And who knows what my outcome would have been at the games had I gone in 2020. Um, not as prepared as I was in 2021. Apologies if this question comes across as a bit sort of crude, as it were, but in the weeks and months leading up to the Games happening in 2021, are you then feeling sort of happier generally with life because this event that was taken away from you is now back on the schedule and you're back training and everything's looking good? Did that lift your entire mental state? It definitely did, and like since the beginning of 2021, but I did have a couple, I did have a couple more road bumps. So I've had, I've had a lot of deaths in the past couple of years. So my grandfather uh, passed away. And then on May 5th, my friend actually um, died by suicide. I'm sorry to bring that background into your memory. No, it's okay. Um, And so that, that again put kind of like a halt on everything. I was in my final quarter of student teaching and I ended up coming back home to the West Side to be with my friends and family. 
And again, I just didn't know if track was something that I could focus on as I was dealing with all that. But for a for a short second, I contemplated whether I wanted to go through a track or not. And then I just remembered she was just so excited for me to go to Tokyo. And before before they had um, decided that there were no spectators allowed, she was going to come and we have like text threads of her talking about making t-shirts and like big heads of me and all the, all this stuff. And she was just so excited. I don't think there was anybody more excited for me to go than she was. So I just, you know, I knew it was something that she would have wanted me to do. She was on your mind in Tokyo, presumably when you're competing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had like a, a whole breakdown after I, after I won my um, silver medal in long jump. It was like my best long jump as far as like my mental state went, I was very confident in my approach and my step. And, you know, I, I was really in my zone. I had played some of my favorite Christian songs before. I constantly talked to Kendall. That's my friend that passed away. I constantly just talk to her when I'm like competing and whatnot. And so, you know, as much as I wish she was at home with my friends and family watching me on TV, it was kind of comforting just knowing and feeling like she was like right next to me. Well, I was competing, which obviously no one else got to do. I actually went into my event really, really pumped, really excited, really positive. And I think just knowing, just reminding myself of the reasons why I I did track in the first place and the reasons why I decided to stick it out and continue to train and compete at the Paralympic Games. I was trying to make sure that the voice in between my two ears is my, my friend, not my enemy. That's what I was focused on the whole time. I really like that. Really like that phrase. It feels to me like the cerebral palsy you just dealt with right from the get-go when you were a kid and it never really affected you that much. And it's the mental health side of things that you've really had to to fight against. That's why I try to always kind of have a, a deeper a deeper purpose for why I do what I do. I was I was listening to uh this video the other day. I was watching this video the other day and it was talking about how when you get stripped away from what you're good at, who are you? And I try really hard. And it's still definitely something that's a work in progress. And I think it's hard for a lot of athletes to do. But make sure that you have some kind of identity and purpose outside of sport. You know, but a big part of it is the mental illness side and being um, a mental health advocate and being someone that people feel comfortable reaching out to. Another big part of it is just being a mentor to younger girls that don't have anybody else to look up to you know when I was younger I had nobody with a disability to look up to if somebody is watching this or listening to this and they're struggling with perhaps bipolar or it might be a period of depression what advice would you give to that person in terms of what to do I would say speak up and reach out that's always kind of been like one of my mottos I think a lot of people think that that they will be shamed or they feel shamed for doing so but I think it's one of the most bravest things that you could do, you know, because that means that you'll get the help that you need. At the end of the day, if one person doesn't take it seriously, another will, you know, and I can, I can only speak for myself, but I always will. Well, Jaylene, I don't really know where to start in, in terms of thanking you for this interview and your honesty. I mean, you're just doing such great things and I don't even mean the Paralympic medals. You know, you're saying great things, you're doing great things, you're helping so many people. So thank you very, very much for for how honest you've been with us. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. 
a very moving episode and I applaud Jaylene and her mum Kathleen for being so open and honest. And thank goodness Jaylene and her siblings had someone like Kathleen behind them for the good times and the bad. If you or someone you know has been affected by anything you've heard today, then advice can be found at paralympic.org slash medical slash mental hyphen health. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to winter Paralympian Clara Klug, who does biathlon, a punishing combination of cross-country skiing and target shooting. And she does it all with a vision impairment. We'll discuss how her sister Pia has been a crucial part of her life and her attitude towards being blind. Please do subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. 